Hi there, everybody. Welcome to the Beyond Autism podcast series. I'm delighted today to uh, welcome Dr. Antonio Harrison, uh, BCBAD, to uh, this series. Hi there, Antonio. How are you doing? I'm good. Yourself? Yeah, very, very well, thank you. So for those of you that haven't heard of Dr. Antonio, you should have done. He comes from, uh, hails from California, works with uh, the University of West Florida and Pepperdine University, and the reason why it's so exciting to have Antonio here today is because we often hear as behaviour analysts about um, ABA or behaviour analysis is not just for the autism field, which, which we know, um, but for sure, like the task list definitely relates to that pretty strongly. But also there can be other applications. And what's really great about Antonio's work is you, you've taken it into a different space. Um, tell us a little, like broadly, like what do you do today? So I apply all of the science to health, sports, and fitness. I also work with a lot of <clears throat> individual clients with respect to those fitness goals, as well as some of the mental health space. And then um, one of the big ones is focusing on leadership and discipline for indiv individual self-care uh, through self-monitoring, self-evaluation. Um, so that that's that plays out in many forms of what I do, um, right. which is nice. I don't necessarily have a single job title uh, besides behavior scientist. That's amazing. So, I mean, we've spoken a bit before, like in terms of getting to know each other. It's been, been a pleasure to do that. But just one of those, if we kind of maybe start back at the big, maybe not the beginning, but certainly like how your career is mapped. Like I don't want to go all the way back. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things you drew our attention to was uh, your Jabber article from 2013, the effects of verbal instruction on and shaping to improve tackling by high school football players. And uh, that's American football for those of you listening in the UK. Tell us about that. So you, that article was um, yourself and David uh, Piles. Is that how you say it? It was Dr. David Piles. So it was it was interesting at the and, and it's one of the cool things. I actually got a, a text message from Dr. Piles. Uh, with a random picture inside the new edition of Cooper under shaping. And there was oh, wow. a big, yeah, one, my article's uh, graph was one of the figures. It was, it was pretty cool to see that. Um, so this was right around the time, I don't know if you guys remember the movie Concussion that came out with Will Smith and it was kind of highlighting all of the CTE issues with American football and the brain injury problems. No, I, you know, I haven't heard of that, but funnily enough, any given Sunday, there's there's a theme in there, isn't there? The Robert De Niro movie with the the big, I don't know, is it? Is he a linebacker, the guy? Now I don't I don't know the sport. There's a yeah, big guy who's his name was Lawrence Taylor, who played for the New York Giants. Okay, so you're the man that knows <laughs> that guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the tackling um, so, with their heads is crazy. Yes, yes, and you know that was just the old way that it was taught. Even uh, I played college football myself in high school and. Um, we were taught to use the crown of our head, not the top, but the crown of our head to to use as a weapon against someone that we were hitting. And as more and more research began to come out and there was more and more uh, notice or recognition in, in mass media, it really started to take shape in a direction that I wasn't happy. It almost seemed like football was going to be eliminated or brought down to flag football. And that's not the sport I grew up and loved. And so I said, you know what, I want to do a study, particularly in this direction, because at the same time, and I have been for the last 12 years, I've been a high school varsity football coach. I was a head coach for six years, took two years off, uh, ended up going to another program and being an assistant head coach and defensive coordinator. And I played defense in college. So tackling is what I did in football. Right. And uh, we have our governing body of high school sports in California is called CIF. Uh, California Interscholastic Federation. And every year there's a national high school kind of rule booklet that comes out. And they always mention, they don't call it this, but what they set up is a task analysis for tackling so that coaches can teach it properly. And there are a lot of people coming up with different techniques like hawk tackling. Uh, the Seattle Seahawks uh, were one of the ones predominantly using it. And coaches were just trying different things and there was a certification for safety tackling and but it was all in its infancy. So what I did was I took a look at that task analysis created by the, that national federation and it was about 10 to 11 steps. And I realized as I read through it, some of them were redundant. 
Um, or, or if you simply utilized one as the priority, the other fell in line. For example, a huge one is to keep your eyes up when you tackle somebody. If you're looking at the ground, you're exposing the top of your head. But if you keep your eyes up, it forces you to pull your neck back um, to protect yourself. Um, and so and another so it was eyes up, pull the neck back. Another step was to put your face mask on the ball of the ball carrier. And I thought to myself, if you simply put your face mask on the ball, your eyes would automatically be up. Your neck would automatically be pulled back. There's no reason for these extra two steps. Yeah. So we took the 10 step task analysis and we broke it down into four very simple steps. And with that, what I did was I recruited some some of the football players and their inclusion criterion were the fact that they had to have played football at least two years. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, they they had to get parental consent to be able to participate uh, outside of practice space. And in our baseline, uh, we basically had a shaping pr procedure with a embedded with a, or a changing criterion design embedded with a shaping procedure. And we also probed at the same time. And so what we did was during baseline, we ran what's called an Oklahoma drill. It's where you have two people facing each other around seven yards apart. Mm -hmm. And there are cones 45 degrees to the right or left of the ball carrier. That person's goal is to get to that cone and get through. The other person's goal is to stop them and bring sure. them to the ground. And it's a, it's a drill that's been used for decades. Um. And what we did during baseline was had them do the normal tackling drill that they would typically do in any high school football practice or Pop Warner uh, middle school practice or college. And from there, we then shaped the skill utilizing tag teach, teaching with acoustical yeah. guidance, which for those who have never he heard, in all honesty, it's click. It's just clicker training. It's just that human beings don't like to associate themselves with clicker training because they're used to that training animals. Uh, and Teresa McKeon is the founder of Tag Teach. And so I spoke with her and told her what I wanted to do. And, you know, we couldn't use a clicker because of the auditory stimuli being too low with mm -hmm. your pads, with contacting people. So what I used was a megaphone with the beep. So okay. the megaphone you would talk into would just be a loud beep. And the first thing we did was we trained it at a walking speed against a dummy bag. Yeah. A dummy bag is about six feet tall. It's a uh, cylinder in shape and it's just full of padding. It's almost like a big pillow. Mm -hmm. And we attached Velcro to the ball as well. And then attach that to the side of the dummy bag to simulate where a ball carrier would have the ball. And so we shaped each uh, step within that task analysis. So, you know, shaping procedure, you reinforce successive approximations to the target behavior. And they had a certain criterion they had to meet. So after they got step one correct for, you know, 90 percent, three consecutive sessions, we would then probe them against the dummy bag. Um, we would probe them on a full live on tackle. And once that probe was done, they'd move into phase two where they had to get step one and step two correct in order to receive the, the click or the auditory stimuli um, and so on and so forth until they got to step four, the full terminal behavior. And the cool thing was the math lined up, right? Okay. It's four steps. Each step is basically 25% of the terminal behavior. Mm -hmm. So when I probe after, you know, second portion of the shaping procedure where they have to do step one and two, when I probe, they should be at 50%, correct? Right. Right. Um, when I probe in step three, they should be at 75%, correct? Got it. Yeah. And so uh, once we got them there to the terminal skill, we then had a coach hold the bag and move it towards a cone. So a moving target first at a walking speed, then at a jogging speed. And then we had the kids moving full speed. Once that was shaped, then we went back to what we did in baseline, which was a live tackling session. It was extremely effective, extremely, extremely efficient. Uh, the individuals I had that were participating uh, within the study we're done with with acquiring the new skill to 100 percent accuracy um, within 20 sessions. 
Yeah, you can uh, see that in your multiple baseline, uh, the graph that's on, on like the third or fourth page or towards the end. Actually, it's at page 521 of the Jabra article anyway, from Jabra Journal. And you can really see how you've got really nice, clean kind of baseline data, an acquisition phase, and then like, yeah, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Like it really looks very cool in that respect. I had to, like, it's really interesting listening to, to how you describe it from a behavioural point of view. Because this is like, it's a foreign sport to me. Like I've, I watch it a little bit on TV, but I, I'm watching it and they're talking about positions and the things that they do. <laughs> and the commentators are saying, oh, did you see that? And I'm just sitting there thinking, no, I didn't. <laughs> it's not until they show it in, you know, replays and show the lines and stuff on the pitch. So, okay, okay, I got it now. But talk, going back to how you taught it, I'm hearing real echoes of the types of things that I might discuss with with in a very totally different field and not to take away from your application at all, but this this idea of generalization of um, a smaller amount of rules to kind of kind of rule govern behavior. And so that you, as you said earlier on in, in how you approach this, you've got less four basic rules that people have got to think about yep. taken away from the 10 steps as it were. Uh, and you said that was deliberate. Did you, did you consider, looking at the 10 steps or was that just something you just eliminated straight off the bat so there's no way there's any point in teaching this because we can condense it there is no way and part of that is in practice uh in, in, in terms of being pragmatic um as a football coach i have a limited amount of time with my players on the field to prepare them for a game and tackling is just one aspect of the sport let alone what their specific position skill has to be sure. and then encompassing the team cohesion of a scheme or um, a play on offense to then prepare for an opponent, understanding what they do. You know, I only have four days in the week, two hours each to prepare them for a game and another team every Friday or every Saturday. So yeah. I can't spend, you know, three weeks on tackling. I yeah. have to be able to move forward in an effective, efficient manner throughout my practice. Even our practice schedules are broken down in intervals of five to 15 minutes, and we move. Once that clock hits, whatever that coach has not gotten done, he has to go back and talk, figure out how he can be more efficient uh, during his, his, his interval of working with that group of kids because we've got things to do. And then you can really see how behavior analysis then just matches that type of environment because it's looking at your kind of comments and discussions at the end, in the, sorry, in the results section. It's really interesting that you bring this point in about the um, uh, the whole team during practice idea. Because for those of you that, well, obviously a lot of people that are listening to this will understand or have seen American football. I get so, I get almost overwhelmed by how many players there are in a team or in the squad. And how you go about coaching that, and the levels, and the, and the different, the start, you see so many different coaches on the sidelines and stuff. So this is a, as you're saying, a really small part. Did you find that there was any um, any uh, self-talk going on in terms of verbal behaviour for the for the players that were learning your four steps through shaping? Did it? Did you? Did that? Did that get laid in, or was it all through the sound, sort of the acoustic feedback? It. That is one of the brilliant aspects of the tag teach slash clicker training is it eliminates the coaches and uh, feedback with, you know, that's one of the things coaches have the biggest problem with is we will talk a kid's ear off for 10 minutes trying to provide, provide feedback. There's no there's no talking with the tag teach. If you hear the click, you got it right. If you did it, you got it wrong which then led the participants to have their own self-talk, not only of correcting their form, but also in terms of almost increasing their uh, motivation or with, or with respect to, to their verbal behavior of, of things like, come on, we got to get this, right? Yeah. Um, increasing the saliency of that reinforcer. Okay, right. So in the training, did you what would you attribute the, the reinforcement to? Would you say it was more positive reinforcement in terms of the beep appearing in the environment or kind of a, almost like a negative reinforcer in terms of players trying to avoid not getting the, the beep, if that doesn't confuse things too much? No, it, it does. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm going to give you the cliche answer, which is uh, it all depends on the individual's history. Sure. Right. Um. You know, it's one thing I always tell my coaches that work under me or with me is that uh, you have to know your players. Some need a, a pat on the back, 
some need a kick in the butts, some need to be left alone, some need to a combination of the three. And so, you know, I'll have some players who the trophies, the touchdowns, the cheers from the crowd, the praise, those are all things that they strive for. And that is their uh, reinforcer. You know, that's what increases the MO. Whereas I have other kids who, you know, one of my best players I've ever coached, he wanted zero parts of recognition. He didn't want trophies. He didn't want anything. He just wanted to play. And then the, the, the third the third thing I'll say to that is in terms of avoidance um, of the aversive, a lot of that is eliminated in tag teach in terms of an outside force. There's no coach saying you're messing up. You're doing wrong. That's mm. all self-talk. Mm. Right. That is I, I'm not saying anything. I'm either providing the click or I'm not. No facial expressions, no anything. I'm just watching, provide reinforcer or don't. Uh, so if they are avoiding any kind of uh, aversive contingency, it's one that they've created for themselves to not getting it correct. And then, so it, you can see from your data, it, it, it was really effective in the study. Do you now, I mean, I know that you coach yourself and you, you know, do a lot of coaching over the years. So I presume and you might use this yourself. Do, have you ever seen, have you seen it being picked up in other environments, um, other coaches with, with football teams? Was this something that you feel that hasn't caught on at all? Or is, is there a change in the field that way? Uh, well, it's interesting. Um, that's the tough part about this study is I'm working with a few individuals and a football team typically will have 50 to 60. Right. So when we go into a group setting like a practice, the way we do it at our program is we will line up 10 different dummy bags, split it so that each coach has a bag with six players and every line goes up. And instead of the click as a reinforcer, we we teach each step. But then it's the coach's job at that point to give corrective feedback that is succinct or to just simply say good job. Right. Um, because I because if I were to use the click or the auditory stimuli, I would have to have six differentiated sounds for all okay. six groups. Um, so that's where the hard part of application comes in. However, I will tell you this. Um, in terms of gameplay generalization, it's very different even when you teach it in the traditional manner, because you're not going to be one on one with a direct cone to go to. You've got 21 other players on the field, <laughs> yeah, right. people moving back and forth. Um, and so what, what we've seen is as the group teaching it in the way we have, and this is, you know, I want to, I'm always trying to be modest and humble. However, I will say this, we play a defense that no other high school team we've ever faced plays because it's harder and tougher. And our kids have been in the league championship for the last five out of six years. Right. Um, in terms of when I did the study, all three of those kids became all league players. And the thing that I noticed anecdotally was where the where the real effect in change was, was the latency with respect to engaging in the tackle. Kids were not waiting and hesitating all of a sudden. The moment they saw it, they bursted to it. They weren't waiting and had that that moment of maybe it's fear. Um, who knows? Um, or processing of what's head going smashed on. It. Yeah, <laughs> but in that because they had that skill under their belts, and the very first step in the training is to take. If if I'm looking at you, and you are running to your left, the first step is I should take a step with my right foot in your direction. Mm -hmm. You're going left. I have to step with my right. Mm -hmm. What you saw was no false steps. No one stepped backwards. No one kept their feet in the mud. It was immediate step. And once that first step got going, the whole chain just unfolded. Um, you must be at the sideline. Just like, <laughs> just punch. Yes. You must be so happy watching that. I think they're going to make a movie of this. Please, please put me in the movie. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. We have to have a fair casting procedure. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but you know he's got that kind of feel of Moneyball or uh, Coach Carter or something like that where you got you know um, what's the word uh, like innovative practices or ways of looking at things or ways of getting people to pay attention or perform 
that hasn't been done before. Like you can really see what you know. Why wouldn't you? If you get better efficiency, better defensive outcomes, players that are making all-star teams and so on. Oh, it's very cool. That must be such a uh, almost like as a scientist just watching your steps unfurl on the pitch and how all of a sudden you're like, well, that, you know that that's just reinforcement or that that's shaping. Like everybody needs to kind of get on board with this. And for me, I, I guess. I'm hearing like a really solid sets of principles behind all of this. I think everybody can identify with it, and you can really see how behavior analysis is applied here. And it's not just, you know, just good coaching. It is proper science. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing too, Andrew, was, uh, uh, and, and I just want to mention this because this is beyond uh, autism, right? Um, I think part of the reason maybe it didn't catch like wildfire was I was too busy making sure everybody within the field was aware as opposed sure. to touching base with the people it mattered for, which were okay. the football coaches. And But with everyone being so hyper-focused on autism therapy treatment, quite frankly, people thought it was cool, but they didn't see any utilization for themselves in practice. Well, I mean, there's, there's a, there's, let's call it, Selfish, I guess, but you know, in other terms, it's where your reinforcers lie, I suppose, which is a shame. And we've talked about that before about how people need to recognize the science, not necessarily the, well, the application of the science and, and give it its kudos. And funnily enough, I went to a conference a few, it must be 10 years ago now, and there was somebody, it was in, it was, I was drawn to it because I'm sort of interested in sports as well as kind of my professional life. And um, there was a, I can't remember many details other than they were trying to help climbers put their hands and feet better on the rocks as they go up and they use pressure pads and how uh, basically you've got colour coding feedback. So after somebody had completed a wall, they would go down to the laptop and see, you know, did they have all greens and some blues and some reds and so on. And it showed you that foot placement or hand placement if you got all greens, that was the best climb you could have done. And what's really interesting to your point is that at that conference, I thought that was the, the most interesting thing I saw that year in terms of innovation and stuff. Um, but it carried no no CEU credits. And I just thought, you know, isn't that a shame? Because how do you draw people to find out more? You've got to reinforce them. How do you reinforce them in those types of environments? It's through CEUs. I think it's improving. The same went for OBM, to be honest. Like it wasn't until this year's ABI virtual conference that I've seen any real CEU weight towards OBM. So I think, I mean, hopefully you'll know better than me, but I, I'm I'm hoping that, that, that the dynamic in the, in the environment is changing a bit. We've talked about the, the article. Obviously, we're getting some really great insight into your kind of coaching life uh, and profession. Um, I want to talk to you about, because, I mean, as you said before, you're, you're a busy guy, but I <laughs> It's just some really cool stuff. Um, thinking about maybe personal training, self-care, that type of stuff, general health, I suppose, would come under that bracket. How's it? What, tell us about your application of the science through those, um, Marie. Well, it's pretty simple, to be honest with you. Um, the first thing is I don't pair myself with the science for the client. I make myself a conditioned reinforcer for the client. I use soft mm -hmm. skills, build rapport. Uh, people have to like you to want to work with you. Um, so that's number one is I get to know my clients um, and understand that uh, they're coming to me for a reason. And if I can make that reason uh, something more motivating and making it a reinforcer, well, then they're going to continue to come to me, right? Just the simple basic principles of reinforcement, mm -hmm. right? The probability mm -hmm. of that behavior increasing. And then when they're there, there's two different type of clients I have. One is who the analogy I will use is my lights are broken in the house. I call an electrician, come and fix them. I don't care how you <laughs> fix them. Just fix the lights. Okay. Right. Uh, and, and for that client, I keep all the data for them. I don't show them uh, graphs. I don't. Uh, talk about with respect to look how many more of, or, uh, you know, you got 30% more accuracy on this or no, what I do is I, I approach it in a way that is more relatable. So say, for instance, if somebody wants to increase stamina, what I'll do without, you know, all of a sudden they'll show up for a workout and I say, we're going to do this today. 
and we will do it. And at the end, I will say, do you realize you just did 200 burpees in 20 minutes? Mm-hmm. That is a revelation for them when they never thought that they could do more than 20. Right. Um, I will say, don't get on a scale. Uh, I want you to when we get started, I want you to put on an outfit that's a little snug because you've put on some weight. And then after some time when I've seen the progress with the data that I keep, when I leave today, I want you to go put that outfit on and tell me how it feels. Text me. Let me know. Right. Um, That's one type of client. The other type is the one who wants to know everything. right? Right. They they want to know how you rewire the house. And that's the client that I still build the rapport with and become a conditioned reinforcer. And then afterwards, I share the science with them and I have them self-monitor, right? Uh, They keep data. We provide rewards. I have a third, as research would tell you in self-monitoring and performance is the best way to accomplish that is through a third party to kind of hold you accountable. Right. So can your spouse provide the reinforcer with respect to the data you're keeping on yourself? Are you publicly posting that data on your refrigerator for your entire household to see, Mm. right? Are you tucking that away and lying to yourself and saying, I did it when you really didn't, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Who does that? Right. (laughs) Um, And, you know, so it, and and those are the, the, the ones who typically want to see the data or where I suggest it and where they keep track of their own behavior are the ones who are looking to build habits and kind of gain more discipline within their life. The ones who come for, I want to get fit and strong and healthy. Those are the ones who just want the electrician to fix the house, right? Fix the lights. That's it. Um, And so I don't, I don't push behavior analysis down people's throat in terms of my clientele, because think about how many years it took us to learn our science to assume that they are going to understand what we are doing in a matter of maybe three months of working with them is ludicrous. Do you, do you see a difference in the, the two types of clients in terms of performance, in terms of engagement, um, dedication? The the type who takes their own data doesn't realize the response effort they're committing to. Right. And that that can be a detriment. It can become aversive. Um People, we have a tendency when, or I won't say we as behavior analysts, but I will say people have a tendency when they want to build a new habit, what they will do is they will provide a response cost. If I don't do this, I can't have this. I got to take this thing away. Whereas if they were to flip that and say, if I can do this seven out of 10 days, I can reward myself. And maybe seven days is too long. Maybe you need every three days. Right. Mm-hmm. But reward yourself instead of uh, instead of uh, removing something in terms of an aversive contingency or 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 some sort of aversive stimuli. Um, they're focusing on the wrong thing in terms of how they're approaching it. Um, so when someone is m- self-monitoring, collecting their own data on their own behavior, all of a sudden, after I have an assessment meeting with them and I send them a template of, hey, create your data sheet how you want. But here's what it can look like. Now it's a daunting task. Oh, right. <laughs> I actually have to record my behavior. Whereas the the like, for example, the, there's a group of five ladies that I train uh, every Sunday and Wednesday morning. I came from there today. They show up. They're excited. They're expecting me to have everything laid out for what we're going to do and to push them and help motivate them through and provide praise and and then be done and walk away and never have to think about it. Right. right. Um, so their response effort with respect to the ratio of their reinforcer is a lot different than the one who wants to self-monitor. And I wonder whether that's why like apps like Strava and Map My Run and things like that have such, you know, high amounts of followers or, or sorry, um, users, because it does it all for you, doesn't it? So you, yep. you kind of go out on your run, you just press a button, then you press another button and then it, it gives you your information and then you well, can post or not. But, well, in the science, we all know uh, within our science, people do the least amount possible for the biggest reward. Yeah, that's how we that's how we maneuver. Um, mm-hmm. So to it's the same thing I tell uh, behavior analysts that I teach in graduate school and even with respect to your own behavior. I take data on all of the habits and skills that I want to acquire everything. Um, yet. 
many behavior analysts I know don't do that for themselves. But then we expect a parent who's working with their child with autism to collect data every day throughout the week, yet we don't do it ourselves, right? That's because right. the response effort is so high? The response effort is high, and, and I guess the, um, you know, when you start bringing parents into that mix, you start thinking that there's the guilt aspect as well. Like, did I miss that child? Did I, did I make, am I wrong about this or that? Did I reinforce something I shouldn't have done? But then also it kind of appeals, like I take your point on the practice entirely, like I'm often talking to people about how much data they're taking, predominantly on from a decision basis point of view, because quite often behavior analysts will, will, unless you know what you're doing exactly, will take too much data about the wrong things and then you end up in a in a real mess about knowing what the hell's going on. Whereas if it's targeted and understood and you're looking towards your outcomes, then of course that makes a lot more sense as you're trying to either shape or change behavior over time. Okay, so I, I suppose then the simplicity of the application obviously is 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 impressive in so much as you can get such great outcomes with basic principles, I suppose. Yep. And and yet, of course, uh, you know, you're typically, I suppose, dealing with or uh, working with clients that are typically developing professionals or just people who are just going about their lives. So you don't have to teach all the other components, which I guess is is why you can have more clients and and all the rest of it. Do you find that there's a kind of a limit for you in that way? Is it just simply capacity or do you kind of like to set yourself a limit for the people that you're engaging with, particularly in your sort of personal training uh, arena? The way I set my limit is based off of my personal priorities. Right. So my personal development, like I was just mentioning to you this morning, I wake up at 430 because I have three kids. And so if I get two hours, two and a half hours to myself to do all the things I want to do. Because if I don't and I wake up the same time as my children, I will never have the time to do it, especially during a, a global pandemic. Right. I will never have the time to do my stuff. So, you know, my personal development, my family. Right. My boys, my wife, my mom, dad, sister and her kids. Um, so I'll give you an example. Um, I have left a conference that I was paid to go to. Two days early, I, I changed my fight and flew home because my eldest son was going to play in the championship flag football game. He made it. That's more important to me than the other stuff. So my clients fall after that stuff. Um, but what I will say is the other thing with respect to the cap on clientele, our jobs, in my opinion, my humble and professional opinion, um, our jobs are to to provide someone with the skills necessary for functional independent living so that I work myself out of a job. Right. Right. So if, if after three months you've got the fitness thing, you've got the self monitoring thing, you don't need me and you just want to check in every four months, I've done my job right. If you're with me for 10 years, the only reason that it should ever be is because I'm that much of a conditioned reinforcer that you can't have me, you know, you don't want to do it without me, but you don't need me for the skill anymore. Right. Um, so I can contact more people and do things on a bigger platform. Okay. So now we have that. We have the movie. We've now got the book because the book now is kind of written on kind of you, <laughs> the personal coach. You don't need me. That's the title. Um, <laughs> but, if there's not enough already, you, you, you're all, you're also starting. I say starting. You, you tell me that like you're working on guided meditation through virtual reality. Is that right? Uh, it's it's a portion of what I do there. So um, I'll kind of go back a little bit. Uh, I was teaching for a different university than the two you mentioned, and I had four classes per term as a full time professor. And I had to, because I was full time, I had to take the max load of students, which was 32 per class. And it was structured so that every third week, and this is the way the university structured it, it's their right, uh, every three weeks and every course, there was a paper. So every three weeks, I had over 90 papers to grade within five days. Whoa. And I was, and at the grad school level, how am I supposed to give graduate school training feedback? in five days of over 90 papers without burning myself out. Yeah, right. And that's exactly what happened. And so, and it was interesting, um, any, any, 
employment I ever take, I tell people, uh, football is seasonal. And when football comes around, I need you to work with me on adjusting schedule because I won't give football up. Mm. And sure enough, football came around after working with them for close to a year. And I said, hey, football's coming up. Can I have the later classes? And their response was, uh, you need to treat this as your full time job. Figure something out with football. And I said, well, no, I quit. Um, <laughs> that's yeah. There's a yeah. phrase over here. I don't know if it's universal. It's, it's, it's a, it says exactly it does exactly what it says on the tin. I don't know if there was like a strap line for like a varnish, I think. And it, I get that impression with you. Like I've told you what's going to happen and this is what's going to happen. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so when I got done, I said, you know, I, I still need a little bit of more income to supplement what I'm losing. But I want to do something that's not going to be as much brain power and so exhausting. Sure. And I've, and so I ended up getting a job working at a fitness, uh, a boutique fitness treadmill studio where we did high intensity interval training. So you would run on the treadmill for a duration, get off and do some weights and kettlebells for a duration, get a break. And then we kind of repeat that process in different formats. But what was really cool about that was I had to wear a microphone to talk to the class. Yeah. I had to curate a playlist in terms of beats per minute of the music to match the intensity of the run or workout they were doing in each of the different intervals. So it would be 20 different songs over a 50 minute span. Um, and then we also got to track their heart rate beats per minute and see how it mapped to the music, to the intensity of the intervals, to the workouts that we were doing and play around with that. And now they weren't approaching that in a behavior analytic approach. They just were saying fitness, but my brain was going to, Oh, <laughs> look at all of this. And I can pair myself as a reinforcer with social praise um, and public praise as well. Uh, that all of their, their, they wore heart rate monitors and on the screen showed all of their data. And I was like, this is public posting. They, <laughs> And, and meanwhile, you're kind of a drib dribbling mess going, I love the data. Right. Um, <laughs> at the at the end, depending upon what you did, you got little badges like you were in the highest heart rate zone throughout and it would identify you as the runner. Um, from there, they got bought by a corporate uh, a corporation which wanted to make it national and they wanted to do the whole Peloton video mm -hmm. style thing. Mm -hmm. And so I got chosen to do that and I would have to. Do all of that plus the workout in front of a camera. Doing really well with that, a virtual reality company, uh, another coach I was working with got there and said, you've got to check this guy out. And <clears throat> so when you put on the Oculus Quest headset, the virtual reality headset, there's an app called Supernatural. And it's a fitness service, but it's not like, all right, Andrew, we're going to do 25 squats and 25 push-ups. You have a, a, a white bat and a black bat. White and black bubbled targets come at you with cones and directions from which you have to swipe, as well as triangles for lunges and squats in these beautiful environments mapped to music based off intensity of light, low, medium or high. So when you pop up for like my I have a workout today that's dropping called balance. When you press play, um, I come up in your virtual reality world. I greet you. I take you through a few stretches. And then as you go into the five song workout, you hear my voice motivating you through with positive affirmations, with corrective feedback on form. And then when you get done, you see me again and I take you through some cool down stretches. Um, one of the cool things that came from that uh, was one of the coaches was like, you know, Antonio, they call me Coach Doc in the thing uh, in the in the app. And they said, you know, Coach Doc also does guided meditations. And they right. said, let's try, let's try it. And so in a beautiful environment for either 5, 10 or 15 minute duration, it, I have an offshoot of the guided meditations where you go in. Each meditation is some sort of different theme. And I guide you through a meditation for 5, 10 or 15 minutes. And a lot of people will say that's not behavior analytic. Right. That's woo woo spiritual. False. <laughs> yeah, go um, on. It is simply when people talk about the buzzword of mindset today, mm -hmm. all mindset is, is what you say to yourself. It is verbal behavior with the speaker as the listener as well with inside the within the same organism. You are the speaker and the listener. 
right? That's all guided meditations are, is engaging in verbal behavior um, that hopefully will have some sort of collateral effect with respect to your 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 overt behavior um, in terms of what you're doing throughout your day. Um, and they've been a hit. People have enjoyed them. But I don't I don't share a bunch of behavior analytic terms in my guided meditations. I think you get people to kind of relax, I think, if you did. Or kind of just go. Yeah. <laughs> it's not talk about skips and reinforcement, they'll probably just start fading out anyway. But it's it's so interesting because I don't know, is is that third wave behavior analysis is whatever people label it, I don't know. Is it fourth wave now? I, I've stopped listening to the waves, so I I'm not interested. But the um is there anything in there that do you get do you give instructions and then reinforce? Is, is that how it works or is it more um getting people to uh, for want of a better term visualize using verbal behavior well because they're in a virtual environment with like beautiful places all over the planet or created places uh there's no visualization because they can literally turn their heads and see this you know they can be on top of a glacier with snow falling in a beautiful frozen <laughs> lake in front of them. they can be on uh the the altars of machu picchu right um wow. But what I what I guide them through are a few things. First off, it's the behavior of breath work, right? Okay. Um, actually deep, breathing in deep through your nose, filling your belly, then your chest with air, exhaling with your mouth. And part of the reason that's important is if you ever watch a baby, you, you have children and you remember yeah. when they were kids, uh, babies breathe with their tummy. Yeah. And that's because our lungs will cover, you know, three quarters of our torso. But as we become adults, we simply breathe in our chest. Mm. We don't fully expand our lungs the way we should, which gives us all the additional health benefits for our body, the oxygen that comes in. So that behavior of learning how to breathe properly, also which can regulate their emotional responses to things, right? Um, and then as I guide them through, I will provide uh, more in layman's terms or um, or, or relatable terms, uh, things that are of importance, right? Uh, parsimony is a huge thing in our field, right? Well, Definitely. all I call that is keep it simple. Yeah, same. <laughs> yep. And so I tell people there's an elegance in simplicity, right? Um, what am I saying there? Focus on the objective, not the subjective. Focus yeah. on the behavior, not all the emotional responding in your pride events that you have piled on to make this thing different than it is. Right. right? Um, I talk about choice. Like uh, this thing isn't bad or good. It's the emotion that you've attached to it for yourself. What I'm talking about there is the history of punishment or reinforcement you're creating for yourself. Yeah. So I'm just translating. That's all I'm doing. That's all I'm doing is translating for everyone else to have access to what this thing is, and I, and it's not dissemination in the, in the in the purest sense of the word, but I guess in terms of disseminating of the science through friendly application, is people that will access it. You know what you're doing because of the, because of your training, and it goes back to the the wiring of the house analogy. You know, people don't need to know that they just need to know the lights work, and they can access the thing that they want in the moment. And I suppose that's what you're what you're providing for people it's funny about well, physiology you know because i never really i don't think i ever really considered it in behavioral terms before or even was able to articulate it in behavioral terms with the sort of client base that i might work with or the, or the sort of service users or learners that i might work with and it wasn't until it was really presented to me by dr mara winston in terms of how they will break up how they may kind of interact with somebody who's in need of kind of physical assistance through a crisis and how they shape their responses in that moment as a, as a professional's behavior based on the physiology of the client, which is at the time I, I remember saying to them, so I had never even considered that, but how obvious it is just in terms of almost respondent behavior. Um, and I guess this is what you're training through the meditation. Very true. I mean, it's this, very true. It's the same way that you see uh, military services train their people with ammunition, maybe even blanks, but loud sounds around. Right. Uh, when you coach a football team and you're preparing them to go to the loudest stadium, you pump loud music and noise into the practice facility. Um, and 
And it, the interesting thing I wanted to mention with respect to the point on dissemination, I flipped the way I saw dissemination of our science. Because when I first began, I thought getting it out there and pushing dissemination, pushing, pushing, pushing behavior analysis, where that got me was a symposium or two, maybe some poster presentations, and maybe a drink or two bought for me at the bar of a conference, right? right? Um, when I stopped focusing on being, trying to be the next Skinner or the next big thing within our field and doing what our science is built to do, which is to help people, um, two things happen. One, with the general public, because I don't lead with behavior analysis, at some point they go, wow, I've heard you mention like five or six different things you do. Like, how do you keep all that in order? Oh, this little thing called behavior analysis is kind of an approach that I use to keep everything together. <laughs> right. <Hooked. laughs> and, and here's the other thing. No one wanted to hear me on podcasts or, or students reach out to me or other behavior analysts and pick my brain until I started doing all this stuff outside and getting recognized. And then all of a sudden people are like, who's this guy? Who's, I was like, it's the same guy who stood up at ABAI in Denver and shared my tackling study to a room of like maybe 15 people. It's the same guy, right? Um, you just weren't there because yeah. it wasn't it wasn't recognized. But out here, everyone's recognizing and all of a sudden I'm being asked to do these things, which doesn't bother me because I've switched what I my operational definition of dissemination. Which and, and why not? I mean, and, and, you know, also now you're grasping the new Cooper. You know, you know, you've kind of gone kind of full circle there. And you get, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? You can get really, I think people are, are trained to be bogged down and to be serial jabber article writers or people that have to, I talk a lot to people around, let let research inspire you, don't let it necessarily, you don't have to go about replicating all the time because the replication has been done for you. So when, yeah. you, when you look at the jabber articles, you can, you can re-see, if you like, as many times, like the representation that you have here for um, shaping and chaining, use multiple baselines to increase, you know, get yourself toward that terminal behavior. Perfect rep replication. But actually now what you're doing with it, with it is what's, you know, the far-reaching thing. Well, and it's the main reason I never published my dissertation. While I was doing my dissertation, I learned about impact factors of peer-reviewed journals and periodicals. And I, I looked up and, and all and for those who don't know, it simply is an algorithm that will cross reference all of the periodicals available to see how many times, you know, Java has been referenced in other places. Um, our impact factor is very low and it's because only we read it. That's it. No one outside of us reads it. Um, and so I, I got to this point of, well, you know, if, if we're talking about our, our science is based on uh, interventions and technology increasing social or being socially significant, what socially significant means is making an impact. Right. And if we're not making an impact with respect to the general public, like why, why, why do I even want to share this at this point? And I was being a little resentful and, and, and maybe cynical at the time. Um, but how do I want to say this? Um, but here's something that I realized. We have, I think, and I've said this multiple times, I think our greatest gift to the general public is teaching people how to take a look at their own behavior. Mm. And it bothers me that I see in, in America here people like, and it's not to say that they're bad people or they're giving wrong science. They're helping people. But when I see Famous celebrity, Dr. Oz, Dr. Drew, Dr. Phil, and so many people following their advice. Where's the, the doctor from our field who can right. really right? like and that's why I go. That's my moniker from the other, you know, the, the supernatural virtual reality thing is like I'm known as Coach Doc. Like, I'd rather be that thing to promote our field than to try to be Dr. Antonio Harrison from this insulated thing coming out and shoving the Cooper book in people's faces. Sure. And now we have our TV series. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just a minefield. OK. I mean, it's been amazing talking to you. And it's so refreshing to hear um, 
a genuine application of the science and to other things. So you, I, you know, you come across a lot of people, and in fairness, I guess it's where you find your reinforcers. Like I've been talking more so lately to people from the OBM field who aren't just using a little bit of OBM to kind of increase staff attendance or what have you. Like it's genuinely, I think it's um, the the I was talking to a lady called um, Dr. Leah Fenimer. I think is I think she's a, a BCBAD. She works over here in the UK. Um, and she has a business partner. She's from, I think she's from America. I'm not sure which part, possibly Texas. But she's found her application in airside airport security. Yes. And I'm, I would be like, wow, like, where did that come from? From somebody who's grown up through, um, autism education. You know, I am one of those people, but when I go to the, I go to the, um, conferences, I don't really seek that out too much. Like I'll try and spend at least, you know, a good portion of that time or, you know, seek out CEUs and, you know, conversations with people like yourself around, le- I guess, learning more about how the science is so applicable ge- generally and how people tend to kind of get it out there and use it. Well, you mentioned the security, which is interesting. Um, when I was in graduate school, I when I first started and started to learn the principles, I was a full-time second grade teacher. I worked three nights graveyard shift at a gym 24-hour fitness and i was a bouncer at a club on the weekends and uh my my first application of our science was inside of the club the bar and the head security guard who was a uh he worked for the los angeles county sheriffs one night he decided to give me the dance floor which is where most of the trouble happens People are drinking, people bump into each other, people are being too aggressive, and that's where things happen. And it's harder to see because of the amount of people versus, say, a bar or a few lounge chairs or things of that nature. And after a couple of weeks, he recognized that every time he gave me the dance floor, there were no incidents. And every time we would finish our, our shifts at the end of the night, we would have to wait for the bartenders and 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 baristas to cash out all their tips and then we would each be assigned one to walk to their car right for safety and so we would sit and we would have a beer and we would talk and he asked me and it was it's what got me bumped up within my pay grade there and he asked me i'd like for you to share with us what's going on what are you doing that's different that you aren't getting incidents And immediately it was, I think I was after done, like maybe my first year, year and a half of grad school and behavior analysis. I just fired off. I said, well, what is the behavior supposed to be inside of a, on a dance floor at a club? Supposed to be dancing, movement. If you see that everything's fine. It's the moment an area stops moving. Something's happening. That's not supposed to be happening. Whether someone dropped a drink, whether two people are getting ready to fight and everyone's watching them, whether someone has passed out, people stop and freeze and pay attention. So if all I'm looking for is stillness, as opposed to what most of you are looking at is a bunch of you want to see the movement after the fact, I'm not being reactive. I'm being proactive. So I'm just looking for the opposite behavior of what we expect. And everybody kind of just leaned over and looked at me. And it was that, but it makes perfect sense. If you are in a place that's, yeah, if you're in a place that's hustle and bustle and everything stops, there's a problem. Yeah. And so how was your record? Did you kind of go, no problems for your entire time there? Or did you end up, were there some things that kind of threw you? Did you find that there were things that maybe questioned, maybe going a bit too deep into it, but were there things that made you think, oh, Maybe I'd need to change my, my own behavior to recognize things better. Did, did, did things change like that or did? Not with respect to the dance floor, but where I had to recognize a change in my behavior was with respect to um, the the interaction with individuals based on gender, in all honesty. Okay. Uh, when males would be aggressive towards each other, it was a lot of show and talk. Right. They didn't actually want to do anything. Mm-hmm. 
So you you could slowly move there and diffuse the situation and separate people. Um, or if a situation did occur, you can utilize certain techniques to immediately break it up. For example, um, if if there's one person who's being the aggressor and the other one's not, if you go for the aggressor, uh, you can have potentially have that responding turn back on you. Right. Whereas if one goes for the one who is being pummeled, that gives the aggressor, it catches the aggressor's attention, which allows another person to remove the aggressor uh, by surprise. Good. But when it came to the women, um, women were, and this is not a stereotype, this is not generalizing, this is just my experience. Uh, the women were either fine or at all, like it all hit the fan. Um, and, and when they, when it hit the fan with them, there was no, you had to get in there quick intervene and they didn't care if you were anybody. Uh, if you put your hands on them or tried to separate, there'd be spitting, there'd be throwing of bottles, there'd be, so it was a very much where you had to, in terms of how you had to approach it in terms of your behavior, your level of aggression, your level of calm, um, your level, your, the amount of verbal behavior you can engage in, um, that is the biggest thing I, I noticed while working there. Um, and that could just be a product of, you know, the culture of, of the club in America. I don't know. I think that sounds kind of fairly universal. <laughs> I think <laughs> humans tend to behave without that one independent variable of alcohol. I think there's kind of a universal response to that over time. I am, um, I'm fascinated by that. I kind of got this visual picture of you sort of, this revelation for the rest of the staff in the bar there you're kind of going yeah, guys you know look at look at the behavior that's different rather than the behavior that's the same and this kind of level of simplicity that kind of you you espouse like look for the simple solutions first rather than going too crazy into really complex explanations really complex um yeah. kind of applications and here's here's the other interesting thing that uh, I didn't mention with respect to um, the contingencies at play in my dance floor. One of the the other reasons besides recognizing the opposite behavior of which we want them to engage in, I engaged in the behavior of dancing. I wasn't dancing with people out in the middle of the dance floor, but I was moving and talking with people, moving people along, right? When you are in a place where there is someone who is very stoic, looks very aggressive and intimidating and is staring down on everybody, you immediately change the environment. Sure. You've changed it. Right. Um, there is reactivity with respect to your presence. And in a club environment where there's alcohol involved, I don't want that kind of stimulus control. But with football practice, it's the opposite. When I when I coach football, whether it's nighttime, daytime, snowing, gloomy, sunny, I wear sunglasses. I keep them on even when we are indoors. And the kids know if Coach Harrison has his sunglasses on, all is fine in the world. The moment I remove my sunglasses, they know all hell is about to break loose because I'm very <laughs> upset about something. Right. So you've, you've developed a whole sort of other stimulus control there. Yep. I don't ever want to see you take your sunglasses off. <laughs> not that you have them on now for the listener. That's not the picture I want to paint. He wears them all the time, except for podcasts, it turns out. <laughs> Antonio, is there anything else you want to share with us? It's been really fascinating talking to you, but I'm sort of conscious of your time. Uh, the, only, the only thing I, I'd like to share with everyone listening is... You have a powerful science in your hands where the 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 common joke is as a new behavior analyst, you want to change the world. Um, well, don't. If that is your goal and those are the things you want to do, do it and do it in an arena that is going to be a reinforcer for you. Uh, go after it. At the end of the day, whether or not it conforms to. The idea that we're autism therapy or whether or not it's constantly presented at ABAI, um, that is not what our science is designed for. It's not designed to praise us in an insular, insulated way. It's designed to help other people. And nobody's going to pay your bills at the end of the day except for you. So go do what you want to do.
Thank you. Well, as I said, uh, um, thank you so much for your time. It's been really inspirational to hear of uh, genuine applications and real, um, I think, inspirational, uh, nimble application of, of the science through all kind of aspects of your of your life that, that have particular reinforcements for you, but also places you found yourself in, like the bouncer at a club or, you know, latterly in life where you're thinking about um, later on in life, rather, where you, you found yourself in, in the in the gym on the mic, mixing the music, and really seeing that application and how it can be present as the science of human behaviour. And I think if what we've learned anything from you today, it's certainly that where humans exist or organisms exist in that case, um, the science of behaviour analysis applies. And, and I think adeptly um, disseminated or, or, or done or behaved by yourself. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it and I enjoyed my time. And for anyone that's listening, um, you can, however you look me up to find me, know that you can reach out and utilize me as a resource and I will set up a time to chat with you anytime. I walk the walk as well as talk it. So if you if you want advice, you've got questions, you want to collaborate, you want to do something, reach out. Don't be scared. I know I can look, I know I have my glasses off, but reach out. <laughs> yeah, watch out, guys. <laughs> You better respond. That's all I've taken from that. It's a man <laughs> and you honor it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks again. Uh, enjoy your, your day and um, yeah, uh, good luck with everything, especially with the, the fires that are near you. Uh, uh, we're all thinking of you guys over there. And um, yeah, take care. Thank you. Have a wonderful rest of your day.